Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again, and welcome to another Ominous Origins podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is a one-stop shop, so to speak, for everything in terms of horror-related pop culture stuff. They have everything from interviews, top ten lists, reviews, introspectives, retrospectives, whatever you want, they have it. Go check them out right now. While you're listening to this episode, go peruse that website and get your fix for everything horror. Before we start the intro, I do want to give this episode a bit of a preface. Now, of course, I did say when the name changed from Horror Shots to Ominous Origins that I would be covering a little bit more true crime. And that's what this episode is about. It's a very special episode, and I worked a very long time on this script. I did a lot of research, and this is kind of the fruits of all that labor. This has to do with a very difficult and tragic series of events. This is BC's, or British Columbia's, Notorious Highway of Tears. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Canada is generally known as a peaceful place, or at least that's what we want you to believe. We're the polite and mild-mannered neighbors to the north of the much more notorious United States, where violent crime is supposed to be much more prevalent. Well, the U.S. does have a lot more crime in general, sure, but it's also roughly eight times the population of Canada. To put that into context, the state of California has a bigger population than all of Canada, combined. More people generally equals more crime. Also, media coverage suggests that murders, rapes, and mass killings happen every day in the U.S., while in Canada we have a couple a year. Tops. Now, while those stats may be somewhat true, Canada isn't without its serial killers and terrible people. Of course, most people are aware of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, which I may cover one day, but it's been done to death, so maybe not. There's also Robert Picton and Luca Magnata. Not to mention Bruce MacArthur, who preyed on Toronto's gay population. We have our share of horrible, terrible, deplorable, whatever adjective you want to use, people. But there's also a notorious stretch of highway in British Columbia's heart, almost smack in the middle. The Highway of Tears, officially known as Highway 16, is a stretch of highway in BC that runs 724 kilometers, according to the Canadian Encyclopedia. It's also home to one of the most notorious hunting and dumping grounds for killers of indigenous women. Now, the highway runs through a fairly financially stricken part of the province, which is home to a lot of poverty. And if there's one thing that is generally connected, it's poverty and crime. And 23 First Nations border the highway at various points. One of the main causes for the disappearances of women in the region was lack of public transportation but that was somewhat remedied in 2017. Due to the lack of public transportation, many of the poorer residents resorted to hitchhiking, which is mostly anonymous. Picking somebody up on the side of the road is a pretty bad idea, no matter who it is, and poses a risk for both parties involved. 
you don't know who's getting in and you don't know who's doing the driving either. Either one of these people could be a killer. There are countless cases throughout North America where serial killers would pick up unsuspecting women and have them never be seen again. It's a tragedy, and it really makes you lose faith in humanity. Nevertheless, Highway 16 was no exception. The actual number of missing or murdered women is under some dispute. The official channels, I use officials in quotes, of the RCMP, which is sort of like the Canadian FBI, has the number of missing women or murdered women at 18, and that's dating from 1969 to 2006. And of those 18, 10 were indigenous women and girls. Some say that the number of 18 is misleading and even insulting as they're ignoring a certain geographical area. Most would agree that the actual number of missing or murdered women exceeds 40. And even then, nobody can be 100% certain. Sadly, the missing and murdered indigenous women isn't exclusive to BC, and it's, again, sadly, a nationwide crisis. In 2015, the federal government launched an inquiry into missing indigenous women in Canada, and Carolyn Bennett, who is now the Crown Indigenous Relations of Canada Minister, claims that the number of missing or murdered women is likely over 1,200. Yes, 1,200. 1,200. Let that sink in. Of all the unsolved or cold files in Canada, 1,200 or more are made up of Canada's First Nations population. That is incredibly sad and terribly disgusting. For as long as I can remember, the racist nature of local and federal police towards the indigenous population is rampant. Refusing to help, not taking these claims seriously, or even covering up as much as they can, have played Canada for years, especially in the North. In fact, I read a story recently about a First Nations man who tried to seek help at a hospital, only for him to be escorted out after hours of waiting. They more or less dumped him at a local university shipping and receiving dock. He later died due to exposure and the illness he sought help for. It's no secret that the indigenous population fight an uphill battle every single day, both in their communities and on a national or federal level. And really, this is a problem in and of itself. The Highway of Tears is just the start, but that is our focus for today. In 1981, the RCMP organized a conference due to the increasing number of disappearances and unsolved cases along Highway 16 and other highways around the area and the majority were hitchhiking. Dozens of detectives from around BC attended this conference, and many of them noticed similarities between many of the crimes, including the same suspicious vehicle being spotted, and even the same people. However, even after bringing in suspects and persons of interest, women were still going missing. In fact, a number of people were actually convicted of murder in several of these cases, including three serial killers. Brian Peter Arp, Howard Dennis Isaac, and Cody Legenbachov. Despite these convictions, people still went missing. There's something about that stretch of road that appears to be just plain evil. There were other people suspected to be involved, but charges were never laid due to lack of evidence. Now there's one quote here that I find to be disturbing, to say the least. 
It's from RCMP Sergeant Wayne Clary, and he said that many of these cases may never be solved, and that, quote, the people in these communities are going to be the ones who solve these crimes, unquote. To me, that sounds like a cop-out, as if you were washing his hands of it saying, you want them solved? Do it yourself. And even if the communities do solve these crimes, will the RCMP or the Canadian court system even acknowledge it? How much of that evidence will be admissible in court? As we've discussed, the authorities seem to have a chip on their shoulders when it comes to dealing with the First Nations communities. It's just rubbing me the wrong way. Just get out there and do your job. Don't rely on civilians to do it for you. In 2005, the RCMP responded to some commonalities between the murders of three women, Alicia Germain, Roxana, Theria, and Ramona Wilson. They created an unsolved homicide unit called E-PANA, which stands for the RCMP E-Division and PANA, who is the Inuit goddess who takes care of souls. To me, that seems like a rather offensive PR stunt, but whatever, they were doing something. And no matter what it was called, it was still something, and it was still important. Right? Even though the creation of EPANA was meant to help, there were certain and very specific criteria that the cases needed to fall into in order to be investigated. First, the victims involved had to be from high-risk activity that would expose them to dangerous things such as hitchhiking or being involved in prostitution. Okay, fair, as that was the majority of the victims. Getting into strangers' cars. Two, the victims had to have last been seen or their bodies discovered within one mile of BC Highway 16. Though that was broadened in 2007 to include Highways 97 and 5. And three, they had to be female. In other words, the majority of the victims. Sure, it potentially leaves out other cases, but they're focusing their efforts in the right places which sometimes needs to happen in events of this magnitude. When EPANA was first launched, the RCMP named nine victims that would be their focus of their investigation. Alicia Germain, Roxana Thiara, Ramona Wilson, Aaliyah Sarek Auger, Tamara Chipman, Nicole Hoare, Lana Derrick, Delphine Nickel, and Alberta Williams. All of these victims, save one, were indigenous. Nicole Hoare was the only non-First Nations woman on that list, and I use the word woman sparingly, as some of these were young, as young as 14 even. Many weren't much older than that either. The youngest victim to succumb to the Highway of Tears, who isn't on that list because she didn't fall into the criteria, was Monica Jack, at just 12 years old. In 1978, Monica was riding her bike along the highway near Merritt when she went missing. Her remains weren't found until 1996. Can you imagine your daughter is out having fun, as any number of other kids might be doing at that exact moment, and then poof, in an instant, just gone. Then, for nearly 20 years, you don't hear anything. Hope is alive, but fading every day. And then one day the phone rings, or there's a knock on the door. Your daughter has been found. Dead. A life lost, and a life wasted, to some inhuman piece of scum. It's just unfathomable. In order to expand the scope of their investigations even further, the RCMP introduced a piece of software into the proceedings. VICAS, or the Violent Crime Lineage Analysis System, because that's not a mouthful, 
Even the acronym is a pain in the ass to say. They also brought in other databases of missing persons. The initial investigative area of just Highway 6, approximately 724 kilometers from Prince Rupert to Prince George, was also expanded to 1,500 kilometers, which included the previously mentioned Highway 97 and 5. This expansion allowed the RCMP to double their total number of victims. Victims who may have been overlooked if not for the widening from 9 to 18. The nine additional victims are Shelley Bascu, Maureen Moisey, Monica Jack, who we just discussed, Monica Ignis, Colleen McMillan, Pamela Darlington, Gail Wise, and Gloria Moody, as well as Michelin Pear. Now, I think it's important to highlight the victims here. I know everybody likes learning about the killers and what motivates them and such. Remember when Netflix released the Ted Bundy docs and girls everywhere lost their minds? Yes, there is a certain allure to these people, but it is important not to fixate on them. It's kind of a sad thing that most people can name half a dozen serial killers, but not a single victim. So, with that out of the way, let's look at these poor victims of the Highway of Tears. Gloria Moody was 27 years old and a mother of two, and she was last seen leaving a bar in Williams Lake, B.C. That was on October 25th, 1969. Her body was discovered the very next day. Micheline Pear was just 18 years old at the time of her disappearance, and she was last seen in July of 1970 along the Fort St. John Hudson's Hope Highway. Her body was found in August of the same year near Hudson's Hope. Gail Ways was just 19 years old and a girl from Clearwater, BC, and she was last seen hitchhiking in October of 1973. Her remains were found in April of 74. Like the previous victim, her case remains unsolved, but the RCMP had a suspect, Bobby Jack Fowler, though there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. Pamela Darlington, who was also 19, was from Kamloops, BC. Her body was found in November of 73, and again, the RCMP suspected Fowler for the crime, but again, not enough evidence was present. Monica Ignis was one of the younger victims at just 15 years old. She was last seen walking along Highway 16 in Thornhill, near Terrence, BC. That was in December of 1974. Her body was also found in April of 74, not too far from where she was last seen. Colleen McMillan was 16 years old in August of 1974 when she left her parents' home in hopes of catching a ride to visit at a friend's. Sadly, she never made it to her friend's place, and her remains were found one month after she left her home. Unlike the other cases, this one was solved, and DNA proved, albeit 38 years later, that Bobby Jack Fowler, that wonderful piece of garbage, was Colleen's murderer. It's likely he was responsible for many of these crimes, but evidence, as mentioned, was scarce, and DNA wasn't really a thing back in the 70s. Unfortunately, Fowler was never tried for the murder, as he died in prison in Oregon six years before the DNA revelation. I briefly mentioned Monica Jack earlier, and despite it taking 18 years for her remains to be found, the crime was indeed solved and a suspect was convicted. Gary Taylor Handlin, a 67-year-old man, was charged in an unrelated crime, and even unrelated to the Highway of Tears cases in 2014 for the murders of an 11-year-old 
girl named Catherine Mary Herbert. Though he denied the murder of Jack, he did confess to an undercover RCMP officer that he did in fact kill Monica Jack. In January of 2019, he was tried and found guilty of first-degree murder. Though I should mention there is a bit of controversy surrounding his confession though, as the undercover officer used something called the Mr. Big Technique, which is a legal sort of entrapment within Canada, where an undercover agent can pose as a criminal to elicit a confession unknown to the confessor. It's been used in other high-profile cases in the past, and it's a technique that has come under some fire for producing false confessions. Realistically, the accusations are true. When you think you're talking to a peer or another criminal, it's not uncommon to brag about the crimes you might not have committed in order to impress the other person. Nevertheless, the confession held up in court. The next victim is Maureen Mosey, and she was 33 years old at the time of her disappearance. And again, she was last seen hitchhiking along the Highway of Tears near Salmon Arm, BC. This was in May of 1981, and her remains were found at the end of a run off lane leading to Highway 97. Shelley Bascu was just 16 when she was last seen in May of 1983 near Highway 16. Her remains were never found, and as such, she is still listed as missing. Alberta Williams vanished in August of 89 at just 24 years old. Her body was found near Prince Rupert, BC a few weeks later. And if you'd like to know more about her, the CBC did an eight-part podcast about her case called Who Killed Alberta Williams. Delphine Nickel, another life lost too young, was merely 16 when she was last seen hitchhiking on Highway 16 between Smithers, B.C. and her home in Talqua, B.C. She's still listed as missing as her body has never turned up. Ramona Wilson, another 16-year-old, decided to hitchhike to her friend's home in Smithers, B.C. on June 11, 1994. Her body was discovered in April of 95 near Smithers Airport along Highway 16. She was nearly at her destination, or so it seemed. And like Alberta Wilson, she garnered a bit of media attention, being a subject in a documentary by Matif filmmaker Christine Welsh called Finding Dawn which was about the missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. Roxanne Thiara was only 15, and like many of the others, her murder remains unsolved. She went missing in November of 94 from Prince George, B.C., and her body was later discovered near Burns Lake, B.C., again off of Highway 16. 15-year-old Alicia Germain was found in December of 94 near an elementary school close to Highway 16 West. Lana Derrick from Get An Ow Band was just 19 at the time of her disappearance on October 7th, 1995. She was last spotted at a gas station near Terrence or Thornhill, BC. She was reportedly traveling east along Highway 16 to her home in Hazleton. She was enrolled in college at the time. Nicole Hoare was not a resident of British Columbia. In fact, she was from Alberta, but had picked up work as a tree planter in Prince George, BC. She was last seen hitchhiking from Prince George to Smithers on Highway 16 West. Poor Nicole was 25 years old, and she disappeared on June 21st, 2002. One of the more recent victims of the Highway of Tears. 22-year-old Tamara Chipman also went missing on the 21st of September in 2005. 
Like so many before her, she was last seen hitchhiking on the highway near Prince Rupert. Her home community was the Morristown First Nations, and she is still missing. No body has ever been found. The latest victim claimed by the notorious highway is Isla Sarik Auger, and she was just 14 years old. She is a student at D.P. Todd Secondary School in Prince George, British Columbia, when she vanished. She was last seen by her family on February 2, 2006. Tragically, her body was found on February 10th of the same year, discarded in a ditch along Highway 16, roughly 15 kilometers east of Prince Albert. As you can see, many of these cases remain unsolved. Not all have been declared murdered or deceased, and there is still hope that they got where they were going. Maybe they wanted to start over and they got their wish. However, the odds are against them in that sense. It really is heartbreaking to see so many lives lost so young. As much as I try to remain unattached for the sake of remaining unbiased, it is incredibly saddening to read about these lives snuffed out with zero remorse. Even sadder is the fact that these are just a fraction of those believed to be truly missing. Remember the communities around the highway claim that upwards of 40 people have gone missing along Highway 16. So let's take a look at some of the unofficial victims of the Highway of Tears. These are the victims that aren't recognized in an official sense or don't fall under the scope of the EPANA investigations, but are still considered missing or murdered by the indigenous communities. Helen Frost was another young girl of just 17 who lived in Prince George when she disappeared. It was during the evening of October 13th, 1970, when she decided to go for a walk. She left her apartment and was never seen again, and she's still considered missing nearly 50 years later. Virginia Samper was the sister of five other children in her family. October 14th, 1971 was the last time anybody in her family would ever see her. The last person to see her was her cousin, Alvin. He had seen her standing near a bridge by Highway 16 outside of her First Nations community. Virginia was only 18 years old. In 1989, Cecilia Nickel was a young 15-year-old when she vanished. Her family believes that she went missing along Highway 16 in Smithers. The police, on the other hand, believe she went missing in Vancouver and therefore does not qualify for the EPANA investigations. On September 25th, 1999, Dina Brame was hitchhiking to her home in Bushy Lake from Quesnel, British Columbia. Her body was found a few months later on December 10th in an area near Quesnel, close to Pinnacles Provincial Park. Bonnie Marie Joseph was in the Vanderhoof area of BC on September 8, 2007, when she went missing. She was 31 years old and an indigenous woman from the Yakuchi Band in the Fort St. James area. She was known to be very independent and was also a frequent hitchhiker. Her favorite route was between Fort St. James and Prince George. Anybody who would travel that route with any regularity would be able to spot her, making her a potentially easy target for any given creep, such as the one who presumably took her. This is a good time to let you in on a little tip. If you are very routine-oriented and rely on the kindness of strangers for things such as rides, try to break that routine. All somebody would have to do is watch you for a day or two and they could potentially know your every move. It's something that makes the job of a PI very easy. 
and it also makes the job of a serial killer, rapist, or kidnapper quite easy too. But continuing on with the list, we have Madison Scott, who was 20 years old when she went missing in May of 2011. She was camping at Hogsback Lake, which is about 25 kilometers southeast of Vanderhoof, BC. Her truck and tent were found at the campground with no sign of her, even after a thorough search of the area. The possibility of her simply getting lost or being attacked by an animal is there, but nothing can be ruled out, especially in that area. Immaculate, or Mackie Basil, was last seen traveling down a forest service road by foot on June 13th, 2013. She seemingly vanished into thin air, as an extensive ground search of the area was performed and no sign of her was ever found. Again, this could be a case of getting lost and injured or a potential animal attack. Anita Thorne is one of the oldest victims on the list at 49 years old. She was a Prince George resident and was last seen by her family on the evening of November 19th, 2014. Her car was discovered the next day at a Highway 16 rest area about 35 kilometers east of Prince George. Given the circumstances of her disappearance, it is likely that foul play was indeed involved. Last on the list, we have Doreen Jack and her entire family. This case emphasizes the tragic nature of the Highway of Tears. An entire family simply disappeared, which to me says that perhaps more than one person was involved in the abduction. It's not easy to overtake a single person, even with a weapon, let alone multiple people, not to mention when kids are involved. Parents tend to go into another gear to protect their own. But speculation aside, it was on the evening of August 2nd, 1989, when Doreen's husband, Ronald, met with a man at a local bar in Prince George. The unknown man offered Roland a job, which really should have raised a flag or two. It's not usually a place where a professional interview would take place, but I'm not sure of the circumstances, so I can't say for certain. The job, however, was for work at a ranch or a logging camp. The family up and left that very night to go to this ranch or this logging camp. It was around 1.30 a.m. that Roland called his mother from a resort located roughly 50 kilometers west of Prince George on the increasingly dangerous Highway of Tears. He told her that he and his family, which consisted of his wife, Doreen, and their two sons, Russell, 9, and Ryan, 4, would be gone for about two weeks. That was the last time anybody heard from the Jack family. Now, I do want to talk about this one a little bit more. Firstly, the flags should have been raised when a random person in a bar offers you a job. The flags should be at full mast when they say you need to leave that night, presumably with your entire family. If the job can't wait a day or two, then it's probably not worth taking. If the offer was lucrative enough for him to uproot then and there, after being at a bar where one would assume Roland was drinking, it's probably too good to be true. This sounds like a case of human trafficking, and it wouldn't surprise me if this mystery man used this tactic to get the family man to get his kids on the road, and once there, hijack the car, kill the parents, and steal the kids. As terrifying and disgusting as that is, it's not unheard of for things like that to happen. Beyond the RCMP, there have been some attempts at private investigators lending their hands in the search for missing women or the culprits responsible, and it seems that at least some have been working with the RCMP, handing over information and findings as well. 
Even with all the manpower involved, it is difficult for any of them to have a timeline available for any sort of answers. One of those PIs is an ex-RCMP officer himself, Ray Michalko. He's been looking into this completely on his own, without taking any sort of pay or compensation for his efforts. It is truly a noble cause. In an interview with the CBC, he stated he once did a count of the number of possible places to dispose of a body within that given stretch of road. He said, and I quote, I remember once counting the number of side roads that a killer could drive off to to dispose a body within an hour, and there were hundreds, maybe more, unquote. He went on to add that, quote, it is the perfect place to go missing forever, unquote. Michalko is a Vancouver residence, which is a whopping 780 kilometers north, give or take. It's roughly an eight-hour drive, and he says that he's put in at least a year's worth of 40-hour work weeks into solving this case, even if he's not met with much in terms of results. He walks the streets of St. George, where Germain and Roxanne Thiara were murdered. It is of his belief that the two girls were murdered by the same person or people, and that he is, or at least, was a local at the time, living near the elementary school where Germain was stabbed. His theory also goes on to say that he believes the two girls were connected in a sort of way. They were both involved with drugs, and they were both looking to get out of that nonsense, which in turn could have angered whoever was supplying them or acted as their pimps. He spends much of his time walking the streets of St. George, handing out his business cards in hopes that somebody will eventually come forward with some information. While he has gotten and remained close with a few of the families, the RCMP hasn't been so kind to him. While some PIs I've read about work with the authorities, Michalko has rubbed them the wrong way, for one reason or another. Even being sent a sort of cease and desist, saying that he would be charged with obstruction of justice should he not be careful. It doesn't seem to bother Ray, though, saying, quote, You know the RCMP is very territorial and I'm sticking my nose in what they see as their business. He adds, I would have felt the same back in the day myself. I can understand that. I didn't expect quite the resistance to what I was doing, though, unquote. He also states that he is a, another quote, thorn in their side, to put it politely, unquote. Now, I quite like Ray. He's a determined guy, and he's got a nose for justice, which is ultimately what everybody should want in a case like this. I do feel that if there ever is a break, it will come as a result of Ray Michalko's hard work. All I can say is keep up the excellent and selfless work. Now, I've touched on many things in this investigation, and the controversies are one of them. But let's look at that in a little more detail. Given the nature of the treatment regarding the Indigenous people in general in Canada, it's no surprise that people and activists are upset about the treatment of many of these cases. First, only recognizing 18 cases as opposed to the over 40 claimed by local communities. Second, not launching the task force until 2005 when the original cases started in 1969. Third, they are accused of being racist and sexist for not starting to take the investigation seriously until after Nicole Hoare went missing. Nicole was a white girl, one of the only white girls involved with the EPANA investigation. Many from the indigenous community feel that she received special treatment based on the color of her skin. A Human Rights Watch released a report in 2012 titled 
those who take us away, and it's telling. It tells of a deep mistrust between the police amongst the indigenous people of North BC, something that I think is echoed nationwide. It's those experiences that have tainted their perception of the Highway of Tears investigations. Some of the communities believe that the police had assumed that many of the victims were drunk, sex workers, or consented to sex before they went missing or were murdered. As if that makes it okay. Like, really. If that's true, which I hope it's not, it's really messed up. It's because of these preconceptions that these families and communities think that the police are ignoring the cases, and that they may even be responsible for their own fates. Sounds a little bit like victim shaming. Furthermore, the non-indigenous victims did receive more attention in the media, and that's pretty much a fact, and there's a couple of reasons for that, none of which are good. The families of Nicole Hoare and Madison Scott had substantial financial resources at the ready, and were able to put out rewards, take out advertising, and meet with the media more often. This is a complete contrast to many of the indigenous families who lived in poverty and simply didn't have the finances to pursue such endeavors. Now I understand that the world is a messed up place, and money is king, but when so many people have gone missing, when so many lives are lost, it shouldn't matter if you're a millionaire or living on welfare. Every life is just as important as the next, money or not. That sort of pisses me off a lot. And that's why I commend people like Ray Michalko, who sacrifices his own time and energy to look for answers, despite the lack of reward or pay. Looking into the scandals even further, it was shown that in 2015, British Columbia's government raised some eyebrows at the way the investigation was being handled. In a 65-page report called Access Denied, written by Elizabeth Denham, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, she states that government officials tripled, deleted emails regarding the Highway of Tears investigation. What that means is that they not only deleted them, but rather abolished them. There's no way of ever retrieving them. This potentially goes against the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. Think the Hillary Clinton scandal to a degree. What was said in those emails, what information they held, and what discriminatory comments might have been said are completely lost to the world. From all this chaos, some good, if you can call anything about this situation good, has come. It has brought communities together. And in 2006, there was a symposium, which resulted in a walk of the entire Highway of Tears. It was attended by the victims' families and over 500 delegates representing all sectors of society, including the RCMP and various levels of government. They also provided 33 recommendations in several areas of concern, such as victim prevention, emergency planning and team response, victim family counseling and support, community development and support. Sadly, very few of these were implemented because the RCMP and the government clearly know best and don't have to listen to the public, right? It's utterly ridiculous. Nevertheless, this did lead to a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women throughout the nation, and in 2016 the federal government launched said query. It named five commissioners and committed over $53 million over two years to the project. Its ultimate goal was to produce actions to address the incredibly high rate of violence towards Indigenous women and girls in Canada. However, the initiative seemed to be geared more at prevention than solving the ongoing crisis. 
Furthermore, the B.C. government somewhat reluctantly installed public transit operating along Highway 16 between Smithers and Maurice-town, which is approximately 33 kilometers. Remember, Highway 16 stretches over a thousand kilometers, so, yeah, a dot, a blip on the map. However, because of this, Greyhound announced in 2018 that it would stop its service along Highway 16. In the end, the Highway of Tears is a major problem in BC, and it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to abuse and unsolved cases featuring mainly Indigenous women throughout Canada. Has some good come from the attention? Sure. But is it enough? Most likely not. The fact that only a few of these cases have been solved is concerning, and the controversies, the assumptions, and the overall air of disinterest from the RCMP is disturbing. More needs to be done. If you do have any information on any of the cases, be them part of EPANA or not, contact your local authorities, and above all, be careful if you find yourself on the Highway of Tears. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcast, or Stitcher. Also, feel free to share it with your friends and family, as the more ears we get on things like this topic of the Highway of Tears, the better off everybody will be. Let's try to shed some light on these missing peoples. Until next time.